Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. This is our last night, because it's the last night of Wednesday night activities as we take a break for the summer. And I didn't plan very well to try to finish all of 1 Peter. So we're going to skip over a couple of sections tonight, mainly because one of the sections that we're going to skip over, we've kind of already dealt with it, and that's on the issue of suffering. Um, that's a major theme in Peter. and it's, it's, So there's a kind of the, the last part of chapter 4 we're going to skip over because I think we've already talked about it. And the first part of chapter 5 on elders, I'm going to skip over that because I preached a little bit about that on Sunday morning. So we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Okay, so is that where everybody's at? 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end, the end of all things is at hand. That's what Peter says there. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter says the end of all things is at hand. You seen those guys out there with the signs, the end is near, the end of all things is at hand. Okay. Now, when did the end times begin? We talked a lot about this when we did our study of the book of Revelation. When did the end times begin? When Jesus went back to heaven at his ascension. So we're living in the end times now. The New Testament, Peter believed he was living in the end times, okay? So when we talk about the end times, there are two extremes that we can approach when it comes to thinking about living in light of the end. Okay, so one extreme is the guy with the placard out in Times Square, the end is near, the sky's falling, the earth's going to be destroyed in 12 years if we don't pass the new green deal. I'm just joking. So stay away from all that. Um, so anyway, there's one extreme of living in fear and paranoia with all types of charts and graphs and all these end times calendars where you have these weird televangelists that try to predict the end. And you, you focus so much on what's going on in the world that you lose touch with reality and really what's going on. Like there's one extreme to the end times is you're so caught up in the end that you lose touch with reality because you're so paranoid about the end times. That's one extreme, okay, of, of how you approach the end times. The other extreme when it comes to the end times is you could basically say, you know what, push it out of my mind. I've always got tomorrow. There's this laissez-faire attitude where, you know, really, you know, Christ could come back a long time from now, so it doesn't really matter how I live. So two really bad extremes. One is living in paranoia and fear. The other is I could care less about it. I'm going to live however I want. So what Peter does here is says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, okay, 
in light of the second coming of Christ, and do we know when Jesus is going to come back? No, we don't. Is it sooner today than it was yesterday? Yes. So Peter's very practical here. He says, okay, in light of the second coming of Christ, he's going to give us four specific ways that we're to live in light of Jesus coming back, the end times. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, okay, he's going to give these. Hey, guys, come on in. Um, he's going to give four ways that we live our lives. Okay. Now, the first thing he says there in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Okay. Really kind of synonyms for the same idea. When you think of the word sober-minded and you think of the word self-controlled, what's that the opposite of? Like if you're not sober, what, what does that mean? <laughs> okay. Why are you laughing, Reese? <laughs> okay. Okay. You're drunk, okay? So what Peter's saying is, okay, since Jesus is going to be coming back soon, we need to be alert. We need to be self-controlled. And it's very interesting what he says there, for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. Now, what's the temptation when it comes to prayer, especially for those of us who hold to the doctrines of grace where we believe that God is sovereignly in charge of all things? What could be the temptation when it comes to prayer? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if God's got it all figured out, and God's going to do what God's going to do, and God's sovereignly in control, then why should I pray? If I can't change God's mind, He's going to do what He does, why should I pray? Now, theologically, when you pray, are you changing God's mind? No. What are you doing when you pray? You're expressing your dependence upon God you're calling out for him to answer. Now, when you pray, are you giving God a newsflash of something he didn't already know? <laughs> no, he already knows what you need before he asks. So Matthew 6, 8 through 10, um, whoops. Okay, I'm missing, there we go. Matthew 6, 8 through 10, for your father knows that you, what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God the Father knows what we need before we even ask. So the, the issue is, is that when we wait for Jesus to come back, we need to be in a constant attitude of, of prayer, praying for needs, praying for one another, asking the Lord to work in our lives. Um, we pray to the Father. Yes, Risa. Yeah, 2000. And we sit there and say, oh, the end, you know, we can see this, the stuff, what Revelations is saying going on or whatever. It's coming soon and it could be another 2,000 years. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be another 2,000 years. It could be tomorrow. Exactly. The point is be sober minded, be self controlled, yeah. be a prayerful person, be watchful. When you think about the end times, really, I mean, you can get out your charts and graphs and all the crazy televangelists that predict all these things, but the, 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 really the two commands that the Bible says is watch and be ready. Watch and be ready for that day. Okay, so. Yes, Jerry. Yes. 
Yeah, we call that the imminent return of Christ. He could come back at any minute. Yeah. So there are some things in the Christian life you can't control, i.e., Jesus coming back. There are some things in the Christian life you can control, i.e., how you live in light of that. Are you a prayerful person? Are you praying? Are you uh, living a life of prayer? So that's the first thing Peter says is as you wait for Jesus to come back, be alert, be watchful, be a person of prayer. Then in verse 8, what does he say? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. It's interesting that Peter says above all. What's the greatest thing we're supposed to do in the Christian life? Love. Love one another. And how does Peter describe that love? He says love one another how? Earnestly. Okay? Yeah, earnestly. Now that doesn't necessarily mean like you've got this emotion, like you're always emotionally engaged at the full throttle loving others. It really means more of that persistent day in, day out type of love that just keeps on loving a person even when it's difficult to love them. It's a love that doesn't get, give up. Okay? So let me ask you a question. Is loving other people an easy thing to do? <laughs> no. But Peter says, above all, keep on, meaning don't stop. Persistently, consistently keep on loving each other. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is forgiving. This is kind of from the Old Testament, Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. James 5.20 Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Are we called to forgive? I'll tell you guys a story. Um, There's some conflict in our church back when we were building the new building and there were some hard feelings and a family came in to sit down with me and um, they were struggling with another person in our church. And um, I said, you need to forgive. And the other person to me says, I'm just not called, I'm not called to forgive. I just don't think God's calling me to forgive. And I looked at them as kindly as I could and I said, you don't have a choice. It's not whether you feel called to forgive. You must forgive. Now, are we commanded to forgive? Is it easy to forgive? No. Sometimes there's some deep wounds that happen. You guys ever heard the story of Corey Tinboom? You know who Corey Tinboom was? Um, she was a, uh, a Dutch woman who um, their family hid Jewish people during the time of the Holocaust. And um, she ended up going into prison in the concentration camp camps at Ravensbrück concentration camp. Um, and as she was in the concentration camp, her sister Betsy died. But she was brutalized by this one prison guard. Verbally abused her, beat her, uh, stripped her naked, made, made, the, made the women pass by and just humiliated her. Okay. Well, after World War II, when she got out um, and she prayed for the Lord's help, you know, she was a strong Christian, she went around Germany giving her testimony about how God had saved her through the concentration camp experience. And so she's preaching on forgiveness that night or, or giving a testimony on forgiveness that night. And as she's talking in, I think it's Munich, she looks at the back of the audience 
and she sees the man that brutalized her. And she just began to freeze up. And then she got done, and he started walking towards her. And she's thinking, what in the world's going on? So he gets right up to her and says, Fräulein, I just want you to know, what you said tonight meant so much to me about forgiveness. Since the time that we last met in the concentration camp, I've become a Christian. And I've done horrible things. And God's forgiven me, but I need to hear it from you. Will you forgive me? And she said at that choice, she could either walk away or she could reach out her hand. And she prayed for strength in that moment, and she reached out her hand, and she said, the Lord forgives you, and I forgive you too, my brother. Now, was that easy for her to do? Okay. So forgiveness is something that's very hard for us to do. But love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let's not misinterpret that passage of Scripture. Love covers a multitude of sins. Does that mean that we excuse sinful behavior? Or we enable somebody to continue to sin? No. It means we're to forgive and we have no option. But it also talks about how there's a process in dealing with sin. We as Christians don't know how to deal with other people's sin. Have you ever figured that out? We either gossip. i got a prayer request. I'll tell you about so-and-so. We gossip. Or when somebody comes to you. Now, this is how we normally practice forgiveness in the Christian life, okay? So, somebody comes to you and says, I'm sorry for what I did. Will you forgive me? What do you normally say to them? That's okay. That's okay. That's not biblical forgiveness to tell somebody that's okay. Because what did they do to you? They sinned against you. That was not okay. So when you extend forgiveness to someone, you don't just say that's okay. You actually have to say, you hurt me. You wounded me. You sinned against me. But I'm choosing to forgive you because Christ forgave me. Yes, I forgive you. And... Other ways that we're really bad with dealing with sin is sometimes we don't want to address it with other people because we're afraid of conflict. It's going to continue to let somebody to continue to sin or we never want to confront it because we're afraid. So what does Paul tell us in Galatians 6, 1 through 3? He says, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, any transgression could be any type of sin. We don't know exactly what Paul was talking about. Probably maybe a big sin in the life of the church. We really don't know. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens to so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, so we are to restore people gently. Now, I don't have time tonight to go into how you do that through church discipline, Matthew 18. There's a process, but when Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he's not just saying point blank, you, you just brush sin under the carpet and don't deal with it. You, you deal with it, you restore someone gently, you forgive, you're tenderhearted, you deal with sin the way the Bible calls you to deal with sin. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay? So, two things Peter's already told us about living in light of the end. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be alert. Number two, above all, keep on loving one another. Be a forgiving person. Love one another earnestly. What's going to happen during the end times, does Jesus say? Now, again, we're, we're living in the end times now, but 
as we get closer to the end, Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew 24, 12. In the Olivet Discourse, when he's talking about the signs of the end, he says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Do you think we live in a love-less culture? For all the talk about love, okay, I think we're seeing more, especially, I mean, we can expect the world to act the way the world acts. I'm just concerned about us as believers. How do we love gospel-centrically in a way that magnifies Jesus, upholds His Word, true forgiveness, don't brush sin on the carpet, practice church discipline? It's, it's, a hard, it's, a hard, um, it's a hard thing to navigate in the life of a church, but we're called to do that. Okay, now if that wasn't hard enough, okay, so be, be prayerful, be sober-minded. Number two, keep on loving one another. Number three... The third way, he says, is to, what? Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay? Hospitality. Did it say hospital? (laughs) Show hospital to one another. Is that what it says on my (laughs) screen? Yeah, it's a misprint. Show hospital. Be a hospital. Yeah, show hospitality to one another. Now, let's think about that culture, that ancient culture. Okay? In that ancient culture... There was no motel sixes or comfort inns or, you know, where people could just come in. And so, so you had a lot of people traveling. And so they were always opening their homes for people to come in. And it was very customary in the ancient culture to welcome somebody into your home, to put a meal before them. They, eating a meal together in the home, opening your home was a big deal back then. Now, what I've discovered here in northeastern Colorado, is people are scared to death to open their homes. And a lot of, there's not a lot of hospitality, I think, that goes on out here as much as maybe in other parts of the country for whatever reason. But we are to show hospitality. Does that mean that you always open your home to people? What, I mean, does hospitality mean that like, if somebody knocks on your door, you automatically have to open it and let them in and stop everything? Hospitality is more of a mindset and a culture and a willingness. I think hospitality means you stop what you're doing, even if it means being inconvenienced by somebody in order to show the love of Christ to a person in need at that time. What's our default? I'll tell you what my default is. Don't bug me. Let me sit down on my couch, watch NBA basketball, or something on some dumb show on Hulu. I don't even have Hulu. Netflix. But don't bother me. This is my man cave. This is my life. I don't want to be bothered. That's usually the attitude a lot of us have. Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's an interesting one for you in Hebrews. Don't, don't, I'll give you a story about this, but I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly how to tell the story without sounding goofy. Okay, so Hebrews 13, 1 through 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Entertain angels unaware. Now, I, I don't, I've got a story, and I don't really know how to process it, okay? Two stories about angels, okay? Now, you guys know me. I'm not Mr. Mystical. I'm not Mr., you know, touched by an angel, Della Reese. Okay, so here's, here's two stories I remember about maybe entertaining angels. One time when I was a little boy, and my mom and my brother were driving in Kansas City, Missouri, and my dad was a pastor, and for some reason, I think... 
we were separated for like we were going on vacation or something. Or I can't remember. My dad wasn't there. It's getting close to, to dusk. It's a really bad part of Kansas City on the highway. We, our tire blows out. And my mom's there, and I'm probably eight. My brother's probably six. We're on the side of the freeway. And I just remember my mom saying, boys, let's just pray. Because this was before cell phones. It was like the late 70s, you know. And so I just remember this big white van pull up. No markings on it. And this big old huge, like Samoan, Hawaiian guy comes out. No, and I remember him smiling, no teeth. Okay? He just smiles. He has a tire that fits our car all of a sudden out of his thing. He puts the tire on. My mom turns around to pay him, and he's gone. Not even there. So I don't know exactly how to process that. But that's one time something weird happened. Now, I could have been a kid and just imagined the whole thing, but I think my mom verifies it. Another time was when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs. We were getting ready to go on a mission trip, and we took our whole busload of youth. We got out. We went to a convenience store, and this guy comes up to me and says, I want to buy every single one of your youth a snack or whatever they want at the convenience store. Just let them go through the line, and I'll, I'll buy it. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Because I've taken these youth to places before where they stop. You know, it's like you get out of Colorado Springs and you, like, you're, like we used to go down to Glorietta. And like by the time you got to Pueblo, they wanted to stop and get like, okay, we've only been gone 30 miles. So stop to the convenience store. So anyway, he pays for everybody. And I'm kind of watching the kids get all excited and everything. And I'm keeping my eye on him because I'm like, this is going to add up. This is going to be a lot. Because I think we had like 40 or 50 kids, like maybe two buses. And, you know, it's just like pandemonium. Just pandemonium. I'm like, I can't, so I'm keeping my eye on him. Like, cause I, I'm like, is this really going to happen? Because I'm, I'm afraid, you know, like, what, what's really happening here? Well, eventually, like, all the kids are done and chaos ensues. And I'm like, where's the dude? I'm like, I need to thank him. I need to find out where he is. Did it get paid for? I could not find him. He wasn't there. He'd slipped out somehow. Now, was that an angel? I don't know. Was the other guy an angel that helped us on our car? I don't know. All I know is the Bible, we have a Bible verse here that says, sometimes you can entertain angels unaware by the way you show hospitality. Don't ask me to explain it or tell you what it actually means in full because I don't know. I just know we have a Bible verse that explains it. So what's the point? The point is we are to be showing hospitality to one another without complaining. What's our first gut reaction? To complain, to grumble, because we've been inconvenienced. Now, okay, so three things, getting to the fourth here. Okay, so Peter says, the end of all things is near. The end is at hand. Again, we don't know when the end's going to happen. Okay, first thing, be sober-minded, be a prayerful, prayerful person. Number two, be a loving person, love, cover, multitude of sins, be a loving, forgiving person. Number three, show hospitality. And then number four, oh, by the way, Peter says, Use your spiritual gift or gifts. Now, this is where, as a pastor, sometimes I get a little frustrated with Peter. Now, I know this is inspired in errant scripture, but here's the deal with Peter and Paul when they talk about spiritual gifts. Do you realize that Peter and Paul never actually tell you how to discover what your gift? They don't give you a spiritual gifts inventory, they assume you have a gift. And they command you to use that gift. 
What does Peter say here? Each, as each of you has received a gift, he assumes you have the gift. You've received it. When you became a Christian, you received a spiritual gift or gifts, a gift mix. Use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So Peter and Paul in the scriptures assume that you have a spiritual gift and you need to use that spiritual gift. Now they give lists, which is helpful. I encourage you to go back and study those lists. Peter here does not give you an exhaustive list. Peter gives two, I think, two big categories that I think are the two big overarching categories of spiritual gifts that you see in the life of the church, okay? So he's speaking gifts, serving gifts. You see it right there. What does he say? Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the very oracles of God, speaking gifts. Now, the, the Greek word he uses here for speak usually means the authoritative speaking in the life of the church, like in a public gathering, like preaching, teaching. But I think it's not just limited to that. There are some believers that God has gifted with the ability to clearly communicate truth. Whether that's preaching, whether that's teaching, whether that's encouraging, it's, it's a gift that God has given you to be able to speak truth scriptural biblical truth in a way that others don't have that supernatural ability to do so i've discovered and i think i talked about this sunday morning in the life of a church the speaking gifts i think are fewer in percentage not as many people have the speaking type gifts as the second category the big category okay so what's the second big category serving if anyone serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, again, Peter doesn't give you an exhaustive list of what that means. Literally, it means to wait on tables. Okay? So, like, here's the thing. I've had people over the years, how do you discover your spiritual gift? I mean, we could take you through a workshop. We could take you through spiritual gift inventories, which is kind of a man-made test. And we can kind of tell you, that's your spiritual gift. Now, go, go do it. Or, I got really good advice from my dad, who was a pastor, he said, here's how you discover your spiritual gifts. He called it the spaghetti principle. I'm like, what in the world's the spaghetti principle? He said, Sean, how do you know spaghetti's done? Well, on my little pot, on my stove, because we have spaghetti lights, 13 minutes on the timer. Right? That's how I know when it's done. Dawn, on the other hand, she like knows it because she can, you know, she takes it out. She's like, it's done. I'm like, I have to go by the time because I can't. My dad's like, you know spaghetti's done when you throw it against the wall and it sticks. Like, thank you, it sticks. So here's my dad's advice. Sometimes the only way you discover your spiritual gift is by serving. It just, you may have to, so here's the point. Don't sit back and wait to discover your gift. See a need and serve and jump in. And as you jump in and serve, oftentimes you will discover that gift because others will confirm it in you. You will feel somewhat of, a, of, a, of like an energy and a blessing. Others will confirm that in you and it'll just kind of fit. Make sense? So there are two big types of gifts, speaking gifts, serving gifts. But notice what Peter says. This can only come from the strength that God supplies. We never want to lose, we never want to lose sight of the fact of God's strength in equipping us to, to serve. 
Um, we're not called to serve in our own strength. He generously provides the strength. Now, that word supply is an interesting word. In the original culture of that day, it, the word kind of carries the idea of a benefactor or somebody who had a lot of money who would finance a choir or finance um, a chorus at his own expense. Like in the Greek theater, when they would put on a play or a show, a benefactor would basically say, you know what, I'm going to pay for everything. You guys just go out and... You, it's like the executive producer today. I'll put all the money up. You guys go make the movie. But I'll just make sure all the money's provided. That was kind of what it meant in the original culture. The way Peter uses it, he kind of takes that idea and says, listen, God has supplied you with everything you need to be able to use your spiritual gift. Okay? Now, the end of all things is at hand. That's what Peter says, right? Now, he's not out there with the sandwich board, you know, saying the... But that's how he started. The end of all things is at hand. This is the context. The end is near. We don't know when that's going to happen. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Jesus could come back. Okay, at any time. But Peter's very practical. Okay, four ways. What do you do as you're waiting for Jesus to come back? Do you freak out with your charts and graphs and wonder about all these weird things? Do you have a laissez-faire attitude? Well, it could be 2,000 years from now, so I shouldn't worry about it. No, Peter's very practical. He says, number one, be sober-minded. Be alert. Be a prayerful, watchful person. Number two, be a loving person. Above all else, love. Be a forgiving, loving person. Number three, show hospitality without grumbling. And number four, get busy using your spiritual gifts to serve others in the body of Christ. And then how does he wrap it all up? What's that kind of the, the, the big wrap-up he uses there at the end of verse 11? In order that, so when you see in an order that, what does that mean? This is, this is the culmination. This is the purpose of everything. In order that, what? In everything, God may be what? Glorified through Jesus Christ. I mean, literally, it all comes back to the glory of God. What is the first statement in our mission statement as a church? We exist to display God's glory. It always comes back to displaying God's glory. You use your spiritual gifts for God's glory. You show hospitality for God's glory. You love one another for God's glory. You are a prayerful person for God's glory. So Peter's given you four very practical ways to live in light of the second coming. So let's ask some questions. I'm not asking you to ask, answer these out loud. These are just some diagnostic questions for you to think about tonight. I'm going to ask you these questions, maybe on your sheet of paper that you're taking notes with tonight. You may want to jot down your answer or at least... Think about it for later on. So here's the first question in light of these things we've looked at tonight. First of all, how is my prayer life? How is your prayer life? Is it stagnant? Is it frustrating? Is it vibrant? How is your prayer life? Are you staying watchful in your prayers? Question number one. I can't answer that for you. Only you can. Okay, second question, how is my love toward others? Do you have any bitterness in your heart towards somebody? Is there somebody you've purposely chosen not to forgive, even though the Bible commands you to? Is there somebody really difficult in your life right now that you're struggling with loving? How is your love? Third how are you doing at showing hospitality? 
Are you welcoming people into your life? Now, let's make this a little bit easier, okay, guys? Because hospitality is kind of scary. Let's, let's, it's between you and the Lord how you use your home. Because I can't police that. I'm not going to go up and down your street at night and, okay, Risa, your light's on. And there's no, I mean, I'm not going to go, I can't do that. But let's talk about the church. How can we be hospitable as a church? I can tell you what I've observed from time to time. In this church, I've seen somebody, this literally, this is what, this broke my heart. And I, t- and I talked to our greeters. It was about a year ago. There was a brand new couple that showed up at church. Very first time. They looked a little uncertain. I didn't have a chance to go greet them because I think that morning or something, I was, I was either doing baptism or playing drums. Or, I was doing something where I wasn't able out, out to meet because I usually meet new people as they come in. You know, our welcome time, it was baptism because I was able to look down. I was up there doing a baptism. After we did the baptism, I did the welcome. You know, we have the welcome and everybody, you know, kind of runs around and acts crazy and shakes people's hands. Okay, here's what I saw. They stood there like this. And the person behind them and the person in front of them basically slammed those two people and shook hands with each other without acknowledging that person in the middle, that couple. And that couple was being barricaded basically by different people shaking hands. And I saw, I sat there and watched it. I just sat there and watched from the baptistry. And I could see on their face a look of dread and embarrassment. And I don't fault the people that did that. I just think they were, what's the word? Clueless? They were, they were, they were clueless to the new person and they were so zealous to shake a person's hand that they knew that they missed a person right there. Now, that's an extreme example of something I've seen in our church. But that should not happen to where a new person walks into Emmanuel Baptist Church and gets ignored during a time where you're supposed to actually shake people's hands. I can see like you're standing there in the foyer and it's awkward and, you know, but when we have a dedicated welcome time where you're supposed to, I mean, so anyway, how are we welcoming people in areas of hospitality in the life of our, of our church? And then last one, Man, I'm stepping on your toes tonight, aren't I? Are you using your spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ? Let me just say this. This, this, this will be, um, I'm not going to apologize for saying this. I'll say it point blank. You are sinning if you're not using your spiritual gifts in ministry. And I'll just let, leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Any questions, comments, or snide remarks after that? You guys ready to move forward? Like I said tonight, we're not gonna we're gonna skip over some areas of First Peter because of the sake of time. So let me just paraphrase chapter four, verses twelve through nineteen. Peter talks about suffering, and I'll just give you the point: it's God's will for you to suffer, and He'll give you the strength to do it. Suffering is a key theme in First Peter about suffering, persecution, suffering for the sake of Christ. Um, And and a lot of people don't like to hear that it's God's will for you to suffer. Because what does the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel tell you? It's never God's will for you to be sick. It's never God's will for you to be poor. You need your breakthrough miracle. You need your financial anointing or whatever wording they use. Any sign of suffering in their theology means you don't have enough faith. 
because you create faith by words that you speak. So you never want to speak anything negative in your life because you're creating a false reality. So, Risa, were you going to say something? Okay, so let me ask, yeah, I mean, let me ask you guys a question. This is, is it not the height of arrogance to think that we as followers of Christ would never have to suffer when our Savior suffered dramatically? What did Jesus say? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. In this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus suffered. We will suffer. The question is, are, do you suffer well? And the main point in that little section that we're not going to talk about tonight is, do you keep on entrusting yourself to your faithful Creator? Do you entrust yourself in those times of suffering? Okay. Then in chapter 5, again, we've we got, we got to streamline this to get finished tonight. In chapter 5, verses 1 through Four, he addresses elders and how elders and pastors are to shepherd the flock. Again, I'm not going to spend time on that because Sunday morning I dealt with that when we talked about Jethro's advice to Moses to appoint elders to lead Israel and talked about how the church in Emmanuel has appointed elders to divide and, and lead. So I'm, I'm not going to spend time on that. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. So you guys ready to go there? 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. Let's, let's read that together. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in this final section, Peter gives basically three overarching areas in which we are to continue to live the Christian life. I think still in light of the end, remember Peter's overall theme, kind of the theme of 1 Peter, strangers in a strange land. We're elect exiles of the dispersion. This, this world is not our ultimate home, our citizenship's in heaven. And so while we live here on planet earth among the world, which is not our true home, how do we function as godly Christians in a place that we really don't belong? We're aliens, we're foreigners. How do we live? Well, he's going to give us three big areas again. And these are difficult areas like we talked about. Like, so we just looked at five that Peter specifically kind of geared with in, as far as how to live in light of the end. Here he's going to give three big ticket items of how we continue to live that Christian life. And so here's the first level, the first way. And that is what I would call, we are to embrace a submissive humility, a humility. Now, there's different levels of humility that he addresses here. 
He's just talked about elders in the life of the church, the leaders, spiritual leaders. But it doesn't necessarily, necessarily have to be those who are spiritual leaders, but even those who are literally elders, those who are older in the faith. So the first level there that he says is to show humble submission to the elders, those in authority. I get, I get uncomfortable when I have to share this, but it's biblical, so I, I need to. I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable for me to stand up here and say, you need to be submissive to your elders, and I'm one of your elders, so be submissive to me. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, here's the point about submission to elders, because Hebrews 13.70 says, Obey your leaders as those who will have to give an account, as those who watched over your souls. Let that be a joy to them. You should never submit to an elder who's blatantly living in sin. And you should never submit to an elder who's blatantly teaching false doctrine. The level that you submit is the level of faithfulness that the elder's living out his calling as an elder. So it's not blind submission. It's not blind you know, obedience. It's you're submissive under the spiritual authority that God has ordained for that elder to have insofar as he teaches the truth and lives a holy life. Okay, so Paul addresses this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. Now, that word is prohistemi in the Greek text. It means those who are your leaders, those who lead those who are your overseers, those who are over you in the Lord, those who admonish you, esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Do you guys think we live in a culture, an anti-authoritarian, anti-I-don't-want-to-be-told-anything-but-to-do culture? Okay. So what happens... Right, let me just ask it this way. Have you guys ever been in a church where the members have not been overly submissive or esteemed or follow the leadership of the elders? Like it's a coup. <laughs> have you seen churches in the opposite where pastors have abused that leadership and have domineered over the flock? So it goes both ways. So Peter's basically saying, listen, you're, we as members are called to submit to the spiritual leaders that God has put over us. But notice what he says also. Secondly, notice what he says there. Verse, the middle of verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you. So he's no longer talking to elders. He's talking to everybody in the life of the church. Clothe yourselves. And we were talking about this earlier when I grew up in Texas. There was y'all. But if you really want to get people's attention, there was all y'all. Okay, so it's like, clothe yourselves, all y'all, with humility towards one another. You guys, all of us. So we are to be humble and submissive towards one another. To be humble. Think about Peter for a moment. Was Peter an overly humble guy? When you look back at the Gospels, was Peter like pretty humble? And hopefully you're saying, no. You guys remember Peter? What did Peter say? Jesus is like, I'm going to the cross. They're going to crucify me. Peter says, if any of these guys abandon you, Jesus, I'm never going to abandon you. I'm right there with you. I'll be there with the end. 
And Jesus says, yeah, before the cock throws three times, you're going to deny me. So Peter was like all into himself. I'm going to do this. And then when he denied Jesus, he was humbled. Now, think about Peter for a moment. What happened when Jesus wanted to wash his feet? What did Peter say? You're not going to touch my feet, Jesus. I don't need to have my feet washed by you. And Jesus says, well, if your whole body needs to be washed if you're going to be clean. Peter's like, okay, wash, wash all of me. So Peter was not the most humble person. But I wonder if when Peter's talking here about clothing yourselves with humility, think about Peter. He's an old man. He's at the end of his life. He's learned the lesson. He's, he's been to the school of hard knocks. I mean, have you wondered what the difference is between Judas and Peter? We can go into a whole theological discussion about Judas and Peter, but one thing we know about Peter was that he repented. He was restored. He was transformed. He went on not to live in infamy as the guy that denied Jesus three times when he preached the first message at Pentecost. He was the leader of the early church. Here he is, an old man. He's learned some things in life. He says, listen, we all need to clothe ourselves with humility. And I wonder if he thought back to that moment in John 13 when Jesus took off his outer, outer garment. John 13, 4-5. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I wonder if when he, when he said, clothe yourselves with humility. Why did he say clothe yourselves with humility? We don't ultimately know why Peter chose that language, but you know, Jesus took off his outer garment and got down and served them. I wonder if Peter's thinking about this whole idea of, of Jesus' example. And when Jesus had done that, when he had washed the disciples' feet, I've given you an example that you should also do as I've done to you. Is humility an easy thing to practice? No. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Proverbs 3.34, Toward the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. All right, so let me just ask you a question. Maybe it's a trick question. What's the greatest sin in the Bible? The greatest sin? Well, that's the great love is the greatest virtue in the Bible. Okay. I don't know if we can necessarily categorize and say, here is the greatest sin in the Bible. I would, I'd say up toward the top is probably idolatry because the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You shall have no other gods before me, idolatry. But it's amazing what God says about pride. Over and over again, God says, I hate pride. I hate pride. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who's humble and contrite in spirit 
and trembles at my words. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're to be humble and submissive to our spiritual leaders. We're to be humble and submissive to one another. But ultimately, thirdly, he says, the third level of humility, we're to ultimately humble ourselves under the sovereign hand of God himself. Notice what it says there. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Why does Peter say the mighty hand of God? What's the hand a metaphor in the Bible of God? Especially like on Sunday mornings we're dealing with Exodus, and God saved them by the outstretched arm or outstretched the hand. Pretty much all throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, God's hand is really a representative of His sovereign authority, His sovereign salvation, His deliverance. Like He delivered the people through the Red Sea by His mighty hand. So what Peter's saying here is when we humble ourselves under the authority of God's hand, we're showing that we have confidence that He'll protect us, He'll save us, He'll deliver us by His mighty hand. What else is the hand of God in the Bible? The hand of discipline. I, had a, I heard a pastor once say, I can't remember, if, I think it was my former pastor said this, better to humble yourself now than for God to humiliate you later. <laughs> Let that kind of stick with you there for a moment. I'm not saying that's always true in every case, but Better to put yourself in a position under God's sovereign protection and humble yourself under Him than to fight against God and have to be a recipient of His discipline. Will God discipline His children? Yes. Shows you're truly a child. Maybe painful, maybe difficult. God's going to get you back on track. If you had the choice between humbling yourself under God and being under His discipline, obviously, which one would you choose? Humbling. Humbling. But aren't we usually pretty stubborn at times and pretty... Pig-headed? Sure, why not? At the proper time, He's going to exalt you. Now, what's the proper time? What's the proper time? Well, some scholars think it, it's probably talking about the second coming, the glorious appearing Peter's been talking about. Um, when Christ comes back, we'll be free of all pain and suffering. We'll be vindicated. We'll be raised in new life. We'll have a home in heaven. We will no longer be targets of hostility. We'll be exalted in heaven at the proper time. Now, verse 7 I love. Verse 7, I have preached the gospel to myself with verse 7 a lot. What does verse 7 say? I, I remember the old NIV. This is just how I remember it growing up. Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. ESV says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's a play on words going here. It's the same word. Cast all your cares on... The NIV actually probably translates it a little bit more the way it sounds. Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Are you ever anxious about anything in your life? Nah. Never anxious, right? 
Never have anxiety. Never worry about it. Does anybody here ever worry? Anybody married to a worry wart? Stays up all night and can't sleep because you're thinking about stuff. What about this? What about that? What, I mean, you're, you're just living in a life of worry. You're anxious. Okay, what did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I had somebody ask me a question one time on Facebook, and I didn't really know how to answer it. For the first time, I'm like, this is a great question. I'm going to have to think about this. The question they asked me, I think it was a former, it was probably, I think it was a former youth or somebody from my church back in Colorado Springs, somebody, not from this church, but somebody I knew from the past. They asked a question, is it a sin to be anxious? And I think it is. Just as much as it's a sin to be angry. Is it a sin to be fearful? Okay. Anything that's not of faith is sin. Now, that's a foreign thing for us to think about because you're thinking, now, if I'm anxious, am I being sinful? Here's the point, guys. You can stress out about whether... Here, here's the thing. <laughs> I'm going to add more anxiety to your anxiety by telling you that you're sinning when you're anxious. That's all you need, right? <laughs> now I'm anxious that I'm sinning because I'm anxious. Okay, let's just throw all that out. I don't want you to think about that. It was like a question that he asked me to think about it, but I'm like, you know, technically if you think about it, if it's not of faith and it's not God's will, because there's commands there, do not be anxious about anything. I mean, it's a command, don't be anxious. I'm anxious, am I sinning? Here's the point. What does Peter say? Cast all that anxiety on him. Cast it on Jesus. Throw it on Jesus. Take it to Jesus. If you're anxious, take it to Jesus. Talk to Jesus about it. He can handle the truth. Remember Jack Nicholson, a few good men? You can't handle the truth. Jesus can handle all of your junk and then some. So keep casting all that anxiety on him because he cares for you. We need to really let that sink in because I think sometimes, what is our gut level reaction for those of us that are prideful? Like, what do we do with just our normal human relationships? Rico, I don't want to burden you with my problems, so I'm not going to tell you about why I'm anxious because I don't want you to have to worry about my problems. Don't we kind of walk around and we don't want to tell other people our problems because we don't want to burden people? Do you ever think we carry that into our relationship with Jesus? I don't want to burden Jesus because I'm afraid I'm just going to be burdening Him. Where'd you get that bad theology? Can you burden Jesus? I think if He died on the cross, He can handle a lot of your stuff. So, this is from Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, that's a different, that's a similar verse, but a different, different wording. Cast your burden, your burdens, your anxieties, your fears. He will sustain you. What does sustain mean? He'll get you through it. He'll carry you through it. Okay, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6-7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, 
So, first big ticket item in chapter 5 that we're looking at tonight, in kind of the second half of our teaching tonight, is this whole idea of humility. Humbling ourselves before spiritual leaders, humbling ourselves before one another, humbling ourselves under the Lord, casting our cares to the Lord, relying upon the Lord, casting our burdens on the Lord. Second big issue is that we are to experience a sober resistance. Now, look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Has not he repeated that? What did we just look at? Go back to chapter 4, verse 7. How do we start out tonight? Be, so, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Okay, there in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Okay, why? Why are, we be so, why are we to be watchful? For the very first time in the book, Peter introduces our enemy behind all of the stuff that's persecution and stuff that's going on. Who is the enemy? The devil. Okay? The devil. Now, this whole idea of being sober-minded, sober-minded, in light of the end, again, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-8, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. In Mark 13, 37, what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Why? Your enemy, the devil, your enemy. He introduces the word devil. Now, the word devil means enemy. In the Hebrew Old Testament, that's where the word Satan comes from. Satan means adversary or opponent or slanderer. Now, we know some pretty good information about what the devil does. Not in explicit detail, but what his modus operandi is. How is he described here? As a roaring lion looking for someone to what? To devour. Now, here's my question to you. Does Satan appear to you as a lion with all of his fangs? Or does he appear to you as an angel of light so that you'll be tempted to fall for his ploys? I think there are three descriptions of what the devil does as a roaring lion. And we get these from Paul's writings, especially in Ephesians. But let me just give you three ways that Paul tells us how the devil is a roaring lion. The first is from... Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. I think the NIV says, give the devil no foothold. The word really means don't give the devil an opportunity to work, a place to work, a chance to work. Don't, like this, okay, don't leave the door open for the devil to come in and cause havoc. 
Keep the door closed. Somebody's having fun in that room next door. <laughs> so don't do things that are going to give the devil a foothold. And those can be any types of things that you're doing that the devil really wants you to do so he can get in and start working. Don't even give him a chance to get in. Like a foothold. What's a foothold? Like if somebody tries to come and open that door and they push it open and they get their foot in, what are they able to do? They get their foot in, they can what? They can eventually push it open. But if you keep it closed shut and they try, they're never going to be able to get in. It's kind of imagery there. Keep the devil, don't let him in. Okay? So don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil an opportunity. As a roaring lion. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word there is methodia. We get our word methods. His deception, his craftiness, his trickery. So he's going to trick us. Anybody ever gone fishing? Let's go fishing, Pop. When you go fishing, what do you use? A what? A lure or something that does what? What's a lure? Why do you call it a lure? Because it lures or bait. A lure, what's it do? Here, fishy, fishy, as a fish comes along, the fish is like, ooh, I want that. It looks good. Sticks his mouth on it. What happens? You're hooked. Satan knows what lures, what bait to use to get you. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things, but he's observed enough of human behavior to know what type of lures work with people. So he has methods. Not only does he have lures and methods and schemes, and not only do you not want to give an, an opportunity or a foothold, but 2 Corinthians 2.11, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Now, there's two words in that passage of Scripture, outwitted. Outwitted means that Satan wants, Satan is greedy to defraud you, to cheat you. He has a lust of power that he wants to rob you with these designs, these methods, these darts, these plans. So here's the point. We're commanded to do thing, two things in light of this roaring lion who wants to have room to work, who has wicked schemes and plots, who's greedy to trick us and shoot fiery darts at us, and it's not a lot of mumbo or jumbo or weird stuff. Does Peter say, go and get your anointing oil and start going and claiming territorial spirits and rebuking people and binding Satan? And what does he say? Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. So the first thing is, okay, watch for him. Be prepared. Be ready. And then secondly, stand firm. Stand. In the passage of Scripture where it talks about the full armor of God, same Greek word for stand. Resist and stand is the same Greek word. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, resist in the evil day and having to done all things to stand firm. Same word. 
Same word in James, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, standing as the devil, and he will flee from you. So what are you called to do in light of the roaring lion? Watch and be ready for him and stand in the gospel. Stand firm in the full armor of God. And what will he do? He will flee from you. Okay, I'm going to, let's write a word up here. Flee. And I'm not talking about the little bug that gets in your bed. My dog has fleas. I'm not talking about fleas. Flee. I need a pen that works here. I have one. You do? Deshonda. All right, that's because you're a teacher. Yes. Awesome. That's what, that's what happens when you're a teacher. You know. That's awesome. It's awesome to have people prepared. See, she's living out the message here. She's prepared. She's sober-minded. She's keeping watchful. All right, so flee. What is more powerful in your life, Satan or sexual sin? I'm going somewhere with this. The Bible says to flee sexual sin. You have a responsibility to run as far away from sexual sin as you can. But the Bible also says if you stand against the devil, he will flee from you. You're to flee from sexual sin, but the devil will flee from you if you stand. So, my advice to you is stand against the devil, flee sexual sin. And those can kind of be the same thing. Just put on the full armor of God and stand against the schemes of the devil. So number one, be humble. Number two, be watchful of your enemy. But then how does Peter end his letter? He wants to give us a solid assurance. A solid assurance. Okay, if you've, we've been in 1 Peter for a while now. What's been the overall theme? You're going to struggle. You're going to be persecuted. You're strangers in a strange land. You don't belong here. People are going to hate you. You're going to be dealing with all these things coming against you. The devil's going to come against you. The world's going to come against you. Your flesh is going to come against you. You're going to suffer. It sounds real exciting, doesn't it? Hey, this is what I signed up for. This is awesome. If we don't have a proper view of assurance, we could get very defeated and very... Um, despairing in the Christian life. So what, is, what has God done for us? Well, look at verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, okay, just a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to His eternal glory, He's going to do four things. He Himself is going to restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Let's look at these four things, this, these four amazing things that God promises to do in His amazing grace. Number one, God will restore you. It's a powerful word. It means to establish, to bring to completion, to equip. God's going to equip you. God's going to produce character in you. God's going to establish your steps. Okay? Second thing He's going to do He will confirm you. 
This word means it's almost like an impregnable wall that will not fall down. We can endure the trials that come our way with a firm and solid patience to make us immovable. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says this, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So He'll restore you. He'll confirm you. He will strengthen you. He'll make you strong. And finally, what's He going to do? He will establish us. He'll cause you to have an unshakable foundation. What happens during earthquakes? Okay. Do you guys know one of the greatest structures in San Francisco is the Golden Gate Bridge? And it's, it was built in the 30s to withstand earthquakes. And it's embedded deep into the bedrock of the Pacific Ocean, and it's got a little bit of a give to it, so if there is an earthquake... It's got enough give that it, it will survive on the suspension bridge, but its pylons are like deep down in that bedrock. Now, it can withstand like a seven-point magnitude Richter scale earthquake. The city of San Francisco right now is doing a retrofitting project, millions of dollars, to make sure it can withstand it even higher. As great as the structure is, is it foolproof that the Golden Gate Bridge will survive? What happens if there's like a major, like a 10 earthquake? So as powerful and as bedrock and as secure a structure as the Golden Gate Bridge is to withstand earthquakes, what do we have that's even greater? We have the solid assurance by God that we have a foundation that will never come crumbling down. Sorry. I'm hearing myself. I said broadcast failed. Well, they're going to miss the last half of the last two minutes of this. That was weird. He will establish us. So think about the imagery of a structure that is solid, that has a secure foundation that won't come crumbling down. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment. Go back to chapter 2. Four through six. Chapter two, four through six. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. God is building His church piece by piece. You are a Christian as part of that. You are immovable. You are unshakable. God will confirm you. God will get you through it. It may be painful, but on that final day, you will receive heaven. God is faithful to do it. So, in the end, God alone is the sovereign king. He rules and reigns. There may be the devil as the roaring lion. There may be opposition from the world. There may be hostility in the form of persecution. There may be painful suffering. But in the end, God is sovereign over all. He's the ruler. He's the king. He has dominion. 
And this God who has dominion cares for us. He deeply cares for us. He will finish the work in us. He will not abandon us. He will never forsake us. He will establish us. He will build us up. He will powerfully uphold us with His mighty hand. And how does Peter end this? He says what? Amen. So be it. Put an exclamation point on the end and jump for joy at this sovereign God who will do it. Aren't you thankful that God will do it? Amen. That's First Peter. And we've got 15 minutes left. Have you, you, have you read any of the... Do you ever read the signs over there on First Christian? Sometimes. Coming back this way, coming into uh, town, on that side it says, have you, have, have you um, cleaned your spiritual house lately? Or something to that effect. I read that the other day. I'm like... <coughs> Or ask God to clean your spiritual house for you. Any questions you guys have, comments, observations, ideas for the fall? We have a whole three months. To... Yes, Jerry. When you were talking about angels, I observed this happen. We were bailing hay one day, and we were headed back to the barn up on top of the wagon while sitting on the bales and there's a couple guys behind us hanging on the back of the wagon and we hit a bump and one of them lost his grip and he started falling backwards and all at once he stopped and he came back to the hmm. wagon and we could grab a hold of him hmm. can't explain it huh can't explain it yeah Praise. When I was young and I had been this is it, and I had been reading the Bible but I wasn't a Christian and I you guys my Bible out and reading it and I would have to read about angels and I thought, yeah, that was wrong. Some of you may be too either too old to remember this or too young to remember this, but this really dates me. In the 80s, there's a huge song by Amy Grant, Angels watching over me, every move I make, angels watching over me. We used to sing it, angels watching MTV, but it, it was not the way you're supposed to sing it. Every move I make. So it's angels watching over me. Anyway, anything else? Yeah, that's really what you want you guys to leave on tonight, angels watching MTV. That's really what I want you to do. All right, well, thanks, guys. Let me pray for us, and then... Um, I have no idea what we're going to do in the fall when we start back up. If you guys have ideas, uh, we've done Revelation, Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Peter. What did we just do before Revela uh, Revelation? Done a lot. So I got an idea, but I'm not going to tell you. So, all right, let's pray. How do you like that? Father, thank you for this time tonight. We do want to be a people that um, love others, pray, show hospitality, use our spiritual gifts, watchful, sober-minded, stand against the devil. Most of all, Lord, we want to um, be secure in the work that you have done to make us secure in you, that you will complete the work, that you'll finish the work, that you will get us through. 
You'll sustain us to the end. That gives us hope. That gives us confidence in you, Jesus. Uh, Help us to walk out of this room with that hope to know that you are Lord of all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.